and welcome to episode 11 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. I am Darren O'Neill. On today's show, we're going to be talking about technology and how it's changed. We've all heard stories growing up from people older than us, our parents, grandparents, who are always like, hey, back when I was a kid, things were so much different. And we always thought they were totally full of crap. It turns out, at least in the case of technology, I could be telling that same story to my kids. I don't have kids, so I'm going to be telling you the story today about technology and how it's changed over the years. I'll also be telling you how I almost was just seconds away from speaking to President Ronald Reagan on the telephone. Uh, If you like the show, do us a big favor. Give us a five-star rating at the uh, Apple iTunes listing or the Android listing or wherever you're getting your podcasts from. And if you're looking for us online, you can go to randomthoughts.com. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com. And you can email us at randomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. We'd love to hear from you. So technology. I was thinking about this one for a while because I've always been into computers, technology, gadgets, and all those types of things. And the way we consume media is completely different today from when I was a kid. I mean, we actually used to have to buy things called records or CDs if you wanted to hear music or cassettes. And even computers, you had to go out and buy a cartridge or a cassette tape or a floppy disk to get your media. And it was a totally different thing. Today, everything just seems so instantaneous and so easy to obtain. It was not always that way. Let's go way back into the past where you couldn't record what was on television. I know it's crazy. I mean, people don't even watch television anymore, but you couldn't record and keep a video file of what you wanted. It just the the technology did not exist. I mean, hell, when I was a kid, televisions didn't have remote controls. I was the remote control. You had to get up and literally change the channel on the set. There was a dial that clicked when you turned it. And that's how you change the channels. Eventually, there became digital tuners, and eventually there became remote controls, but they were revolutionary at the time. To be able to change the channel or turn the television on and off from the easy chair, it didn't exist. I mean, now you think about what you can do with your voice, whether you're using one of the Amazon devices or Apple devices or whoever, where you could just say, hey, computer, turn on the lights, turn off the lights, turn up the thermostat, turn it down. None of this existed. Way back in the early days, you couldn't record television until the first VCRs came out. And one of the first was a Sony Betamax. And my dad was in sales and there was a promotion and he won one of these devices and it was the size of a small house. I mean, it was literally amazing how big this thing was. It was like a tank. The cassette ejected out of the top. You know, there was nothing man. There was nothing automatic about this. It was a completely manual thing. When you wanted to press play, you'd literally press down play. You know, it wasn't again, a little, uh, It wasn't a uh, tactile button. You actually press down like the old fashioned tape decks. You had to actually press and put some force for the for the button to go down. And if you wanted to record, you actually had to press play and record at the same time. Once, of course, you turn the knobs on it to set the channel that you wanted it to record on. Nothing about the process was automated. Well, 
that was until you bought the add-on of a digital clock, but it wasn't really digital. It was one of those where the numbers actually just spun, so there was no digital numbers, but that was the very first timer for a VCR. It was an add-on. It didn't even come included. So if you wanted to set up the program to record something six hours down the line, you had to set that timer, press play and record on the VCR, and hopefully when that time came, if everything went well, the uh, program would start recording. That was 1977 or 1978. That's when the Betamax first came out. I looked it up on Wikipedia, and Sony was still producing beta tapes. Believe it or not, it wasn't until November 10th of 2015 that Sony announced that it would no longer be producing Betamax video cassettes. The production, production and sales ended in March of 2016 after nearly 41 years of production. They're still being made by third parties, but that was a heck of a run for Sony, and Beta was a better format, even though VHS won. Sony actually had a better picture, but that didn't really matter back then. It was more about getting your product. It was a marketing thing, getting your product into people's homes. And that's why the, the VHS system won over the Betamax, even though the Betamax was a smaller tape and had a better picture. So you don't always win with the best possible product. And about those same times, to another kind of revolutionary thing, believe it or not, kids, Microwave ovens didn't always exist, and it wasn't until when I was a kid that microwave ovens came out, and again, we got one, and it was like, wow, this is crazy. You can put a cup of water in and heat it up. I was surprised to find that the, uh, one of the earliest microwaves was presented at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair by Westinghouse, where they demonstrated the cooking of foods between two metal plates attached to a 10-kilowatt 60 megahertz shortwave transmitter. People thought this was amazing. And at the time, it certainly was in 1933 because we thought it was pretty amazing in the 70s. But you see how long some of this technology takes to come to fruition and to be cheap enough to be available for you and I to buy it and put it in our home. Televisions, going back to that for a moment, 27 inch televisions were pretty big at the time. You didn't have these 50, 60, 70, 100 inch screens that you could hang on the wall. They were big cathode ray tube devices that uh, once you got into the 32 or larger tubes, you know, it was going to take a couple of people to be able to move that. I've got a set that's probably about eight years old that is a 60 or 65 inch DLP rear projection set. And I can lift it myself. So it's a crazy thing when you see how the technology has moved on. But one of the most interesting technologies to follow for me is the computer technology and the way that computers have allowed for communication between people around the world. I got my first computer back around 1980. It was a TRS-80 color computer, the TRS-80 Coco or as a lot of people like to refer to the TRS-80s back then, and maybe they still do when they speak about them, they would call them the trash 80s. But they were actually pretty decent little machines. They had a whopping, I believe, there were two models that originally came out, a 4K and a 16K, and I believe that my parents got me the 4K machine because really, who would ever need 16K of RAM, right? A whopping 
4K of RAM. Let's put that into a little bit of perspective, if you would like. The machine that we're recording this podcast on right now is a Dell desktop that has 64 gig of RAM in it, which means it has 16 million times the RAM of that first TRS-80 color computer that I started honing my craft on. It's amazing when you think about it, 16 million times more RAM in this device. You think about those early devices, how simplistic they were. They didn't have floppy drives. They had a, a slot for a cartridge on the side, a la a video game. You know, like you remember your early Atari systems, the, uh, that you would put the cartridge in, or your Nintendo where you slide the cartridge in. Well, that's what the early TRS-80 color computers had on the side where you could slide a cartridge in so that you could buy different games, different programs and that, and you would just slide the cartridge in and it would just pretty much work. So no muss, no fuss. You didn't have to worry about it loading. It was a very stable system. But without the floppy drives, you instead had a cassette player. And I'm talking a normal cassette deck like you might remember from back in the day that you would use to record some you know, messages to yourself or whatnot, a very simplistic little device. Well, this is what they recorded the signal on, which basically sounded like an old modem, which we're going to talk about in a second. But you actually had to put the cassette tape in, press play, make sure the volume was set correctly, and let the cassette deck play while hopefully the computer loaded the program correctly. If you remember cassette tapes, they were not the greatest medium. Often you'd get little dropouts and things like that. And if any, any part of the tape got even slightly damaged, <laughs> forget the program being able to load. It's amazing now what we can do with the phones in our pockets that are so much more advanced than these old machines were. But at the time, these machines were revolutionary. In that old TRS-80 color computer that I had, it contained a Motorola CPU, the MC6809. It ran at a whopping one megahertz. Yeah, I know, that's a lot of processing power there, but it was not only in the TRS-80 color computer, it was also home of uh, in, in a lot of arcade games at the time from the early to mid 80s. Williams Electronic used it prolifically, and it was in their arcade hits such as Defender, Joust, Sinistar, and Robotron. It was also in a bunch of their pinball machines that had the electronic stuff, you know, the cool little parts of the, that when pinball machines became a little bit more than a pinball machine, where they became that kind of a combination pinball machine video game, these processors were more than enough to, to run those kind of things. So in your ar arcade games, you had the same little processor running it. And you know what? It did the job. But as far as communications went, if you've ever seen the movie War Games, you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about when I say an acoustic coupler. It was the original modem. It was the first modem I ever owned was an acoustic coupler, 300 baud modem. Yeah, 300 baud. <laughs> you want to talk about going from 4K to 64 gigabytes. It's about the same thing, going from a 300 baud modem now to the gigabit that we're pulling down from services like Comcast. And Comcast offers up to two gigabits at some point, so... It's amazing the difference in speed, but it wasn't about speed back then as much as just being able to connect two computers to get information back and forth. That was revolutionary. 
there was no internet back then. This was in the days of just bulletin board systems where you had to dial a phone number. And this is back where this acoustic coupler came into effect. These modems weren't even plugged in. It would be a very short time after that you would be able to plug a phone line directly into a modem and have it do the communications all on its own. But those first modems were were the acoustic couplers. You actually had to take the handset of your phone, dial the number, and once you heard the computer answer the phone, which sounded like a fax machine, you put the phone handset into the acoustic coupler, press down to make a good uh, seal there, and that is how your computer talked to the other computers. They actually used the handset of your phone to transmit and receive information. It's nuts when you think about the way the technology has improved in just a few decades. But that worked back then. But who were you calling up? What were you doing? And well, that's the question. There were BBS systems around. This was the precursor to the internet. There was such a thing as bulletin board systems, and there were lists that you can get. They were shared on bulletin board systems. So it was kind of a self-propagating thing because they all wanted to have people find them. So everybody that was running a bulletin board system, they were happy to share lists of, of other bulletin boards. And this is how people, you would email somebody. But if you both didn't call into that same system, nobody got the email. So you had to have an account at the same board. You had to call it up. You could read text files on the board, which is mainly what it was, because this Again, 300 baud was only about good for doing text. So you would call up these bulletin board systems, which were basically just some other guy who usually it was just one computer system. So whether they were running an Apple II or something like that, but those were the hearts and soul of a bulletin board. Somebody who took their computer and hooked it up to a modem that would automatically answer the phone and let you look at the files on that system let you play games on that system, let you message people on that system. One of the most famous bulletin boards of all time was based here in Chicago. So I was able to easily call into that one. Not that there weren't ways to get free phone calls at the time. We'll talk about that in a second with a little freaking action. But one of the biggest bulletin boards at the time was the Ripco bulletin board system. It became infamous for the files that it hosted, because the files that they hosted included the Big Book of Mischief, which was basically a version of the Anarchist Cookbook. If you wanted to learn how to make a bomb, that's where you went. If you wanted to learn how to make a box, getting into the freaking again, if you wanted to make a box that you could plug into your telephone that would give you free phone calls, that was the place to go. Ripco, believe it or not, a lot of these files are still online. If you want to do a Google search for Ripco BBS, that's R-I-P-C-O. You can find a archive of these files, and it's interesting to see how scary some of this information was back then. As we were just getting into the world where information was completely free and easy to exchange, there was yet no internet. So people were still trying to go after the guy that ran this bulletin board and others because they were hosting this information. The government tried to shut them down. We was threatened with jail time just for hosting these files. And as we know, we have this thing called the First Amendment and information cannot be criminalized. 
And they fought for that. They fought for that. So the guys over at Ripco, it's amazing to me that the company is still around doing internet tech things. And it's amazing that an original archive of their files is still up and running. I remember it was a big deal back in the day. And I don't remember exactly what year this was, but I would say probably 85, perhaps. It was a big deal that Ripco was getting a new hard drive that would be able to store all of the text files they had and more. You know how big this hard drive was they were getting, man? It was going to be massive. It was going to be 20 freaking megabytes. I know. It's sad, right? I have a phone sitting on the desk here that has, I think, about 200 gigabytes of storage on it. But 20 megabytes at the time was a really, really big deal. It was a huge deal to be able to store that kind of content. And it was it was revolutionary at the time. Now we look at that like I can get a, uh, you know, what? It's about five bucks to get a little USB thumb drive that would hold 50, 100 times more than that would hold, if not more. I'm not really good at math at the moment, I guess. But these bulletin board systems eventually converted themselves, some of them did, into chat systems. And basically what the chat system was, was a guy who had a computer and for whatever reason wanted to hook up like 8, 10, 16, I think was about the high end modems to that computer where people could call in and chat. They were the first chat rooms. And it was, again, I hate to keep using the term revolutionary, but it really was. This was the beginning of these, the kind of things that we take for granted now on the internet. What you can do on Twitter now, well, you couldn't do it back then. But you could go on to a local chat room and you could interact with people and go off into the side and have private conversations. And it was the first internet dating. It was the first way to have an internet chat. It was the first way to speak to people anonymously through the magic of computers and modems. We've come so far since then. It's almost hard to conceptualize that it was a big deal at one point to even be able to take your phone, your wired phone, dial a number, slap that handset into a coupler, have that computer talk to another one, and be able to communicate with the world. Now we take things so much for granted that we're on the internet at all times. And on the internet, you can access computers all around the world. Back then, it just wasn't the case. But this is where it all started. So the history of this is truly interesting and amazing to me. A lot of it because I've lived through it, but just to see where we've come. So I urge everybody, go check out the Ripco BBS page. Check out you know, the Wikipedia page on things like bulletin board systems to see these these systems that really became legendary for either the files that they served in the case of Ripco, the games that you could play. There were a lot of text-based games. This is one of the things that I was into back in the day was a game called Zork. And there's been multiple versions of Zork. You can find them to play online too. So check out Zork if you're interested. But it was a game that was all text-based. And this was perfect for these types of systems. And they would give you maybe a half hour a day or so that you could call in. Because, again, there's only limited resources. Maybe one person could be on at a time. So you dial in until you didn't get a busy signal. And then you got into the system. 
you played the game for a while and then you had to wait to the next day to get some more time. But it was basically all text based adventures. So they'd be like, you're standing in a field to the west is a house to the north is whatever. And you would have to type in very basic commands like go north, open mailbox, take whatever items they said that you've seen. And this is one of the original text based computer games. To be able to write your own something like that, then offer it to the world through a BBS was amazing. Now we can do this very easily. Anybody can start a website and have it up within moments. Back then, it was a, it was a lot more work and it was a lot more complicated. But let's talk a little bit more about freaking because this goes into the telephone service, which is something, again, we really take for granted now because most people with their cell phones have unlimited text and calling throughout the United States, often even a larger range than that. Or if you're going to call overseas, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than it used to be. We're talking pennies now instead of maybe dimes, quarters, or dollars per minute to call wherever you're looking to call. So freaking was a way to screw the phone company and then to screw companies like MCI and Sprint. Now, if you were, if you were freaking with Ma Bell, you were probably building a device that you would plug into your phone line or you would use it again like one of these acoustic couplers to send signals through the line that would make the phone company think you were a repairman or something like that, testing the line. And of course, if you're doing that and you make a long distance call, you're not to be charged because you're just testing the lines. So there were multiple boxes and they all had a color code to them that you would build these little devices. This is why Radio Shack was really popular at the time with the Freakers, because you would go out and actually build these little boxes to generate the tones or do whatever you want to do to take advantage of the phone system the way it worked so you could get free phone calls or be able to put together your own party line. There were lines that you could call back then. This was like an early anonymizer, if you will, because there were phone lines that if two people called in at the same time, you would be connected, but neither one of you would know who the other person was. So it was a very weird kind of a drop kind of a thing uh, to where you could both connect at the same time. Back then, luckily, phone companies didn't know who was calling immediately. We didn't have caller ID. And even though caller ID can be spoofed, now it's very easy to know where a phone call is originating from. The technology is there that the phone company can easily figure out who is generating a call, where that call is generating from, if it's from a landline, especially. Granted, it gets a little bit more complicated if you're talking a cell phone, but back then, even a landline, it took a while to trace it. If you've ever seen any old movies, that wasn't a joke. When they'd be like, try to keep somebody on the line for like, 30 seconds, 60 seconds more of two minutes. You got to keep them on the line so we can fully do a trace. They couldn't tell where the phone calls were coming from. The technology just wasn't there. The old switching systems and that, they somehow got your call from point A to point B. But being able to figure out where that call originated from, the technology wasn't there to do that, which is amazing when you think about it, the fact that this system even worked at the time. But it did. And I'm glad that it was unable to be able to trace a call when the call was being made because that let us as you know, kids be able to do a lot of stupid things. Uh, one last thing on freaking before I get into my call to the president of the United States 
And that would be when I mentioned MCI and Sprint, there was this other thing that you could do. If you didn't want to screw Ma Bell, if you're trying to screw MCI and Sprint, these were companies that came out and offered long distance services outside of Ma Bell. But to use their long distance services, you had to call their 800 number and then put in your, your very simple pin code, which was usually like a 18 to 20 digit number because everybody had to have a different number and they couldn't be easy to guess. So everybody would have to call into that 800 number, put in your long code, and then you'd be able to make a call. Well, the freaks at the time, and that's with a PH again, figured out that once you typed in or generated a valid code, it gave you a different signal than it would if you typed in a bad code. So they were able to program a computer system to do nothing but call Sprint, call MCI's 800 number, try the code, see if it was good or not, and then give them a report. You could go onto these bulletin boards at the time and print out lists of hundreds of Sprint or MCI codes. So then if you had friends that lived out of state, you could just go to a pay phone, use that code, call them up, and ha-ha, free phone calls. So I apologize if back in the day, you may have had a Sprint or MCI code and you got a really big bill that wasn't yours one time, that might've been me. I'm not saying it was, I'm saying it might've been. But on to my call to the president, and this is something that has stuck with me my whole life as a crazy story and I didn't really know how true it was because again, you're dealing with bulletin boards there where people would post different types of information. One of the things I saw said, here's the phone number, secret phone line to the White House, to the president. And it said, you'll call up and somebody will say signal. And then you'll say, I'd like to speak to the president. Well, I thought it was probably bullshit, but one of my cousins was over, I believe, and I showed this to him, and he's like, well, we've got to try. I'm like, that's not a really good idea. And he's like, no, no, what's the, what's the worst that could happen, right? As a kid, and at the time, I would think I was like 13 or 14, Ronald Reagan was president at the time. So it was a good president if you were going to get somebody on the phone, I think anyway. He'd be a good one to talk to. So we picked up the phone, and I dialed the number. And a male voice answered and said, literally, signal, not hello, not hi, this is wherever, just signal. And I'm like, wow, that's exactly the way it said. And now I've done a little research for this podcast, believe it or not, I do research every now and then. And it turns out that the White House Communications Agency, which is what it's called now, was originally known as the White House Signal Corps and then the White House Signal Detachment. It was formed in 1942 under FDR, and it was created to provide secure, normal, secret, and emergency communications in support of the President of the United States. So I guess now it makes sense. They weren't asking me for a signal, which is, this has just blown my mind learning this today. You know, 30 some odd years after the fact, I thought they picked up the phone and were asking for a signal. But no, now I realize this was just the signal core 
at the White House picking up the phone. I said, I'd like to speak to the president. They said, hold on. A few seconds later, a woman answered the phone who said she was the president's secretary and asked who was calling. I had, must have just seen on the news George Schultz, the uh, Secretary of Defense or something back then. I'm drawing a blank on that now, but I said, George Schultz. She said, hold on, please. This was the point where we hung up, and I kind of regret that as me now, again, 30-something years later. As me then, my heart was going to burst through my chest at the point that the woman said, hold for the president. I mean, I don't know what would have happened next. If I'm putting odds on it, looking back on the whole thing, as crazy as it seems, I do believe there's like a 70 to 80% chance the next person that may have picked up that phone might have been the leader of the free world. And if that happened, it would have been a hell of a story to tell. I'm just afraid that the Secret Service might have shown up and uh, had a few questions for me, and my parents then would have had a lot of questions. So hanging up the phone was still probably the right thing to do. But I never know now if I was just a mere few seconds away from speaking to Ronald Reagan. Either way, it's a hell of a story, and either way, it maybe should be a signal to you parents out there that you don't always know what your kids are doing, and they may be getting into some crazy shit. Never got into any trouble doing any of this stuff, but I did get my sister in trouble once when I hacked an account at DePaul University when she was there. And, uh, but that's a whole nother story in, it. it's a, in its entirety. But technology. Now, I mean, I guess it's still somewhat easy to get the president on the phone. Stuttering John of uh, Howard Stern fame did that recently to Donald Trump, but he did get the, he did get the, uh, from the Secret Service. So I'm glad. I'm glad that never happened. And, uh, you know, I was probably more worried about my parents than the Secret Service at the time. But is technology better now? Sure. The fact that we can do things with our phones, the fact that I can record this show and get it out to you within a matter of moments, the fact that you could do these things live now if you really wanted to do them. The computer power is so much more. The televisions are so much better. You don't have to go buy physical media. I mean, how happy are you that you don't have to stack up CDs and DVDs and all of those things to store your digital media? Now we just need a big, big hard drive. And I've got more terabytes in the house than I can imagine. So you compare that again to the 20 meg that Ripco was getting back in the day. And it's not even close. But I want to hear from you. What do you remember about those early days of technology? What rocked your world when it came out? What trouble did you get into? Did you ever go on a bulletin board and find some information and go, hey, maybe I could build that bomb and then, uh, you know, your school disappeared. Who knows what happened out there? You don't have to admit to anything. You can send the information anonymously. We won't tell, but we'd love to hear your stories at randomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening.